0: You guys have gotten much older since the last time I saw you. <laughs> so good to see you. So good to be with you, Ryan. Thank you uh, for your gracious invitation. Um, when we <clears throat> chose the name, you know, Desert Springs, uh, we wanted to be you know much more than just a a fellowship. And there is nothing wrong with you know being being a fellowship, uh, but we recognize that we are not only living in a high desert, but uh, there is a hunger here for far more and a thirst here for far more than water. And it was our Savior who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And I will give him water to drink. And if anyone drinks this water, we're told in Scripture they thirst no more. And so you have been true to the vision and how deeply grateful we are for who you are, uh, how deeply grateful we are for who you've been, how deeply grateful we are for what you are becoming in Christ Jesus. We deeply love your pastor Ryan, and that's not only because he shares a name with our son Ryan, but uh, <laughs> we we love his theological vision. We love his heart. We love his compassion. Uh, we love the fact that uh, the word is front and central, but you know far more than you know simply. Uh, the Word of God, the Word of God is a means to the Son of God and the redemption of God, that in falling in love with His uh, Word, you are falling in love with Him. And uh, we thank you uh, for your witness. And it's a privilege to be home. Tilly is really good here. We love you guys. Oh, Father. You are gracious and compassionate, you are slow to love, you are slow to hanker and abounding in love. You do not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is your love for those who fear you as far as the east is. From the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so Lord, you have compassion on those who fear you, you remember our form, and you know that we are are but dust. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Several years ago, there was a best-selling book in the business section, and it was entitled Everything I Ever Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it had some delightful chapters in it. Of course, it encouraged you to play well with others, which we should all do, encourage you to share your toys, which we should sometimes do. Uh, It also tells you that when you've misbehaved, it's probably good for you to take a time out and to think about what you've done. Uh, And it also stresses the all-importance of nap time and a never-missing nap time. And, And the term of the book is it takes you back to foundational truths. But when we go back to foundational truths, we go to a far deeper and to a far richer place. Because we have been placed in the middle of God's grand redemptive story. It's a story that it begins you know, from the very first words of the book of Genesis. And the story is told in a beautiful way. It invites us. And in. many scholars, when they turn to the book of Genesis, they have called it archetypal history. And when they call it archetypal history, they're, they're telling us there's a little more going on in the text than just simply you know, a recounting of events. It is that. It is Certainly that, but it's much more than that. It is a history of people and of places and of things, and it's very real, and it's grounded in history, and that's beautiful of the gospel. But as the writer of Genesis forms his story, he invites us into the story. The language he uses is elevated language, and it's very simple, it's very subtle, it's very beautiful, it's very elegant. But what he is saying throughout the story is not just their story, this is our story. And this is not just their beginning. This is our beginning. And this is not just their chaos. This is our chaos. The book of Genesis, you know, for us, answers these huge questions. Who are we? You know, why are we here? Why are things such a mess? And is there any hope? And, of course, the story starts beautiful. (laughs) It just starts with the grand words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. And he saw the light was good. And you have this beautiful refrain. And then in the second chapter of Genesis, God moves toward his creation. Not only has he made man in his own image, but he is interacting with man. He has placed them in a garden. He has given wonderful provision to them. He has not only given them wonderful provision in the garden, he has given them wonderful provision in giving Adam and Eve to one another. And so he has taken Adam and he has placed him before all of creation. And he looks at all of creation, and you remember the litany in Scripture. Seven times you know, in chapter 1, God has looked back at creation and said, It's good. It is good. It's good. And the seventh time he says, it's, it's very good. Uh, but that litany is interrupted, you know, in chapter 2 when he says it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And so he not only places him in this perfect place, and what he's doing in this space is absolutely incredible. He is creating, as many scholars, you know, are now recognizing sacred space. He is creating a place where heaven meets earth, where we can know God and can enjoy his presence. And this is a promise throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that one day God will be with his people and will be their God. And, of course, you, you catch that in John. Whenever John sees Jesus and he says, we behold his glory, the glory of the one and only, come from the Father, full of grace and, and truth. And he says, and the Word became flesh and, and he made his dwelling among us. And it's a picture of God in the middle of the tabernacle, in the middle of his people, walking and enjoying their presence, and the garden is is kind of a tabernacle image. And then you move to chapter three. And here in chapter three is where things begin to unravel. And this is where we begin to feel the chaos that that we live in. So I'm gonna take you this morning carefully through chapter three. Uh, And uh, we're gonna begin in verse one. So if you have your Bibles, or your devices, uh, why don't you turn to Genesis, and we do know when you're doing Facebook instead of reading scripture. <laughs> Genesis chapter three. Now the servant was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. In Hebrew storytelling, already we're alerted to something unusual is going on in the text. Uh, usually, in Hebrew storytelling, you don 't introduce and characterize uh, you know a character from the beginning. you unfold the text and you let the text reveal who they are gradually. But the writer of Hebrews wants to know that there is something going. The writer in Hebrew wants us to know that there is something going on a little bit deeper, so he pauses and he begins to give this description. Of course, one of the most unusual things you know for many people, if you 're reading this for the first time, maybe you you have not been part of a church you know, that reads scripture. Maybe you have not read scripture and there's some kind of curiosity that has brought you in. And, and all of a sudden, we're reading a story where the main character, one of the main characters, is, is, a, is a serpent. And, and, and that's just a little bit curious in and of itself. Those of us who have been reading it for a long time, we, we've either read it enough that we just kind of take it for granted that there's a serpent you know, at the head of the story, or we've developed this robust biblical theology where we know through the end of the story exactly who the serpent is and exactly what his end, end is and exactly what God has in store for him. So we call to mind, you know, Revelation chapter 3, where the mighty dragon is cast down to the earth and he's described as the ancient serpent who deceives the world. And, and so our biblical theology gives us a place where we're, we're processing that. But how, if you were hearing this for the first time, would you take it in? Well, how would it come to you? you had just been redeemed, you had been brought through the Exodus, you're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God is making a covenant with you, and you're you're hearing stories for the very first time that describe exactly who your God is, and exactly who you are, and exactly why you're here and exactly, and you're hearing these stories and you hear the word serpent, you would not only think of you know, a physical serpent, you would begin to think in ancient mythology This is a mystical creature, you know, ascribed with all kinds of powers and all kinds of uh, you know, mystical presence you know, throughout Scripture. But you have just come from Egypt. And if you have come from Egypt, this is a powerful symbol of the country that bound you and held you for 400 years. You've spent generations in Egypt, and you had seen the symbolism. And so you also have a little room to develop a biblical theology. You realize, you know, that this is a powerful symbol. You realize that this is a wise symbol. You realize that this is a symbol of the nation that you have come from. You see in the the crowns of Pharaoh, and the armbands, and the reliefs, and the Egyptian pyramids. And and so you too have a biblical theology. This is a power. This is the power that enslaved us. This is a power that is contrary to God and all that God would have for us. And so you realize that conflict is already happening. Now here's the description. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty, very curious, than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Now the word for crafty there, Uh, is kind of an interesting word. It already has a sinister tone to us, but in the original Hebrew, it's a neutral term. Matter of fact, in Proverbs, we are told, it's a wisdom word, we are told to seek this quality. Prudence is usually how it's translated in the English Standard Version. We are told to seek this quality. The snake has this quality. So already we're framing what this text is pointing us toward. There's a question here. That this is powerful, Image of wisdom is coming into the garden, the space that God has created for us to know Him and to be flourished in Him. And, and the question from the very beginning is what is He going to do with His wisdom? Uh, he's been gifted from God wisdom above every other creature. What is He going to do with His wisdom? And there's a question that comes around right after that if we were given the same kind of wisdom, what would we do? with our wisdom. And then there's a question that is even below that, is should we launch out on our own and seek wisdom? Or should we find our wisdom in the one who created us and trust in his power and in his wisdom? He said to the woman, in the middle of verse 1, did God actually say... I love this phrase. If you're reading the, the, the original Hebrew, you know, which most of us probably did before we came here this morning, if you're looking at this you know, in, in the original Hebrew, the first word in the sentence is, is the word actually. And, and I'm amused when I see that because whenever I am you know, telling a story and you know, kind of waxing eloquent, you know, recounting some things that have happened to me, usually my wife's first response to me as I'm telling a story is, really? And, and I say, you've lived with me all these years. You have no confidence in my stories? And of course, you're listening to me this morning. That doesn't bode well for you either. So, whenever I tell a story, he says, Go, really? So, why do you always go, really? It is that sense of skepticism that he's introducing in the text from the beginning. It has the same kind of feel in Hebrew. Really? Did, Did God give you all of these delights? And did God place you in the middle of this garden with everything that's just beautiful and dazzling and rich and rewarding and hopeful and inviting? Did God do all of this to you and then just say no? In other words, is God a, just a big no? Now, you've felt that, haven't you? I know when I was in high school, it, it just seemed like, Everything that my friends were enjoying and everything that was fun and everything, you know, that everybody was, you know, talking about and making a whole lot of out, you know, was just, it was kind of a no. And, and to make things worse, I was a Baptist, so we added no's to the already no's. Uh, there were some legitimate no's in our no's, but there were also, you know, some no's that were, you know, not, not quite as legitimate, we, we, we couldn't dance. Um, I figured that was really genetic, because I've never seen a Baptist dance well anyway. And we figure if we can't do it, you shouldn't do it, so we kind of moved on to that. But there's a real sense, you know, that God has placed us in this incredible garden of delights, and the only answer we get when we pursue those delights is no. And nothing could be further from the truth and the provision that God has given us. Matter of fact, there really are no no's with God that are not followed by a greater yes, are they? In other words, if there is a restriction, and this is God's creation, this is a creation that is a good creation. So what is the tree sitting in the middle of the garden for in the first place? Is it you know, a bad tree that God created and he put out there in the middle of the Just to deceive? These are gifts that God would have given them in his own time, in his own way. And the question is not whether they should have these gifts, but how they should require these gifts. And will they trust him to give him his good gifts in his time and in his way? There's also something interesting, you know, that's going on in the text. Uh, whenever, you know, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced, you know, to the name of God. He is a powerful creator who has exercised authority over all creation, and he has created man in his own image. And, and so you hear the constant litany of the name God. When you get to verse 3 of chapter 2, the, the name changes. And, and the name changes from God to Lord God. And of course, you know, because you're well taught here, and I'm sure Ryan has taught you, and told you this many times, that any time you see the word Lord in all caps in your text, it, it is not the word Lord, it is the word Yahweh. Which is the covenant name of God. And it describes God in his highly personal nature as he demonstrates his faithfulness to his people. And not only demonstrates his faithfulness to his people, but in the covenants takes upon himself the unfaithfulness that we respond to him with. And so it's a it's a beautiful description. Not everyone sees a covenant in chapter 2, but it has all the markings of a covenant. God has given Himself to Adam and Eve in a deeply personal way. He has provided for them in a lavish manner. He has given them this wonderful setting, He's given them this wonderful place. He has given them to one another, and He has pledged Himself to them. And so you have this wonderful language. And so 12 times in chapter 2, you will hear the, the, the word, Lord God, Lord God. Matter of fact, you're thinking the Hebrew writer could have used some pronouns. You just hear a constant beat. And it comes 12 times. 12 times you hear the word, Lord God, which also has significance when you're thinking in the terms of the Hebrew language. And then finally, whenever the serpent enters the scene, the very first thing he does is he moves from a personal description of God to a very impersonal description of God, and he just says, God. In other words, the God that created you and kind of left you here, you know, the distant God, the faraway God, did he really, did he really tell you guys no to every possible thing that could delight your heart? Uh, The woman corrects his theology just a bit in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And, of course, if you go back to chapter 2, what God said is you may surely eat of every tree. You know, that there is a sense of certainty. Know this. You may surely eat of every tree. And, of course, she's already moving a little bit toward the innu window that the serpent has thrown her way. God is hes holding out on you. He's putting limits on you. And she's not quite as generous with God's provision, you know, as she should have been. So then the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And she's also added, you know, a little bit to the prohibition here. God didn't say anything about touching it. He said, Just don't eat of it. Because in the day you eat of it, you'll, you'll surely die. You're saying, you know, God is, is, and she's also using, not the covenant name of God, but she's using the impersonal and the distant, not that it's impersonal and distant, but she's not using the covenant name of God, where it talks about God's personal provision. And and as she's using it, she says to him, him, and and God won't even let you touch it. And notice where she connects, and you shall surely die. She connects it to touching it. God really is arbitrary. God really is... And kind of a little ridiculous. God really does have a lot of rules that seem so unnecessary. And she's moving toward the serpent in a big way. But the serpent said in verse 4 to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God. Knowing good from evil. So what is the temptation here? I just uh, bought a truck. I don't know why I need a truck. Um, possibly the vast acreage that I ranch on the weekends. Uh, but but uh, you know, a truck is you know really tied up in you know the way I think about myself. I've never had anything else but a truck, and I cannot you know really picture myself in a smart car. <laughs> and uh, we we set a limit on how much I should spend on my truck, and, and we agreed on it. And the truck that I found costs uh oh, three or four thousand more. Um, so I got out consumer reports, and I'm reading about, you know, the performance of this truck and <laughs> the resale value of the truck, and these are the arguments I'm making back to Cindy, why we should, you know, never retire but just keep buying your trucks. And, and I come up with every practical reason, you know, why you should have a truck, but that's not really what's going on, you know, when you buy a truck. That's not the reason you buy a truck, to be practical, right? We're all agreed there. You drive, you buy a truck... It, because it, it, it feels good. I mean, you turn it on, it's not a Prius you know, from the very beginning. And, and then you buy a truck because it, it looks good. And, and then you buy a truck because it sets you apart from the crowd, right? I mean, we're all agreed on that. And, 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 so, you know, I bought, and then you have to realize, well, I'm a pastor, I really can't buy that truck, so I bought the other one. But anyway... That's what is going on with us. You know, we we see and we want these things, but the reason we see and we want these things and the reason we're we're delighting in these things is what we really want is is we want a sense of autonomy. So the whole temptation of, you know, we want to, to reserve for ourselves this one last thing. You know, whatever else we do, we will do anything, you know, as far as doubling up on quiet times, we'll do anything about going to services, going on mission trips, but but there's one thing we want to reserve for ourselves, and the one thing we want to reserve for ourselves is the final call. We want to decide for ourselves what is good for us and what is best for us. And as long as we're going in the direction that God is going in, and as long as obedience is a very easy obedience... You, you, we are fine you know, in submitting to the Lordship of the Christ, but the real question is when you come to that place and where you see these things you know, that God has set before you, do you trust him or do you reserve for yourself that final call because you're not quite sure if you really can trust him to give good gifts to his children? So that's exactly you know, what's happening. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. You know, God's exaggerated everything here. You're not going to die. I mean, and if you do, that's way out there. That's not really something you need to think about. What you really need to think about is how you live before you die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good from evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it feels good, it looks good, it sets me above the crowd. She took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the verbs here are very hard verbs, and they come very rapid. They, they, they forecast a sense of impending doom, but not only that, they add to the pace of the text. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And all of a sudden, the world is turned upside down and inside out. Verse (laughs) 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. If you're in Canaan, you know, the largest leaf you could find would be a fig leaf, so that would be the first one you'd grab for if you're going to cover yourself, and as large as fig leaves look when they're on the tree, when you're trying to cover yourself, they're woefully inadequate. And, and so, not only are they uh, grabbing for fig leaves, they're, they're sewing fig leaves together. How do you even sew a fig leaf together? And can you imagine, you know, that holding for very long as you're sewing these, you know, fig leaves together? It's almost like a, a child's craft, and it has no hope of endurance. It has no hope of even it is even accomplishing the task it happened. So at first blush, it looks like all the promises of the enemy are you know, coming true. Nobody died. I mean, she, she reached out, she grabbed the fruit. I'm not sure if she paused to wait and see if something happened. Then she took a bite of it, and, and nobody's dead. Their eyes are open. But, but, but what did they see when their eyes are open? They see for the very first time their inadequacy. They were able to be with each other without any shame, and all of a sudden, in this moment, they are looking at each other, and they're saying, "I'm not sure I'm enough," and uh, they begin to they begin to cover. We don't do that, do we? You spent a little time this morning kind of working on your persona, most of you. Uh, the jokes are not going to get any better. You need to <laughs> grab them while you can. And part of the reason you know we, we do that is, is, is we want you to perceive us the way that we want to be perceived, that's why we buy trucks, that's why we buy houses, that's why we go on vacation. We, we, we want to create a way for you to look at us, you know, that really, you know, deep down inside you. We want you to look at us and see us as someone that really, you know, we have our act together. Everything's really cool. And Sunday's the worst of all, right? I, I mean, Sunday's really when you get your least wrinkled shirt out. And you may spend a little bit extra time on your chair and put on respectable shoes uh, you know, or whatever you know, the fashion is, and you, you get in the minivan, and aren't you sad you have a minivan and I have a truck? You, you, you get in your minivan, and as you're driving your minivan, you're in the middle of one of you know, the worst fights that you've you ever noticed, or worst fights happen on the way to church. You're in the one of the worst fights you've ever had, and you're just kind of going back and forth, and oh, you're just at each other's throats, and you're going, but then you get on a soon, and you realize church is pretty close, so you, you kind of soften just a bit. And then you turn into the parking lot of Desert Springs and you just have this biggest sanctified smile on your face and you get out and you greet each other and you're just saying everything's cool. Everything, no harm, no foul. When is the last time someone really saw you as you are? We don't want that. Because we have a deep sense of inadequacy because... We're alienated from our God. And there are all kinds of things that that we try to do to run and to hide and to cover. And it is as flimsy and as hopeless and as helpless as trying to sew together fig leaves. And when, verse 8, Uh, They heard the sound of the Lord God, and and you remember the rhythm I was telling you about a while ago in the text? 12 times the Lord God, and when Satan comes on, he takes us back to the power and the sovereignty of God, but he removes us from the personal name of God, and uh, the woman begins to bind in it. But whenever the the Lord comes in the garden, Uh, The writer of the text introduces him to us as the covenant God. Why is he coming into the garden? He is coming into the garden to move toward his creation, which has been alienated from him. And even though they have been unfaithful to him, he is faithful to them. Don't you love that wonderful prayer that Paul tucks away, you know, in the book of Timothy? That even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He is so deeply committed to us. And in this moment, when you could have just started everything over, in this moment, he comes into the garden, and he's moving toward them. Um, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the tree's of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man in verse 9 and he said to him, where are you? you know, many people analyze the text and they talk about an inadequate view of God. They're looking at God in a very, you know, human, you know, kind of sense. And God is coming in and he has no idea what's going on. But obviously that's not the case. The Hebrew culture has a rich view of God. They've already been introduced to him in the context of their oral history and everything that's gone on with Abraham as a God who provides, a God who cares, and a God who sees. And so he's not asking the question for you know for information. He's asking the question, and it's such an incredible question. He's asking the question for, for their sake. Adam, where are you? Maybe a great way to answer this question would have been to ask the question, where were you yesterday? Because yesterday you're in the middle of the garden. We're walking deeply in fellowship with one another. And you're enjoying not only all the provisions of the garden, but you're enjoying beautiful relationship that I have given you in this one that I have fashioned to complete and to compliment you. You are enjoying the riches of my provision. Where are you now? Did any of you think of the Mumford song, Mumford and Son song? Oh, you guys are not as hip as you used to be, but anyway, this question—you know—it's a question you, know, a question, you know, Marcus Mumford asked of an old lover. You know that they've had an incredibly tough breakup, and in the middle of the breakup, he's just saying, "I wonder where you are now. Do you ever think of me in the quiet and in the crowd?" And the question is a deep one. Yesterday you were enjoying rich fellowship with me. Where are you? You're in the garden of delights that I have created for you with all of my provision for you. And where are you? You are hiding and you are covering. What a a great question. Most of us reminisce. You know, for those of us who have known Christ uh, and trust him as our hope, Uh, There was a time, wasn't there, when it was just so rich. You know, maybe you go back to college. You may have been in a Christian movement and you were in the Word and uh, the worship, you know, was capturing your heart in a way that was just beyond explanation. You, You loved the gospel and every time you heard it, it just kind of, Uh, deeply enriched you and your your position in Christ. And you not only love the gospel to the point of being obnoxious, you love talking about the gospel. So anytime your friends saw you coming, they just ran in the other direction because something deep and something wonderful and something life transformational is going on in in your heart and life. And and for many of us, we we look back to a time when it was really rich, when it was really wonderful. And, And there's a great question there, where are you now? Because God's grace doesn't diminish. God's grace only gets larger. God's provision doesn't diminish. The more we experience it, the richer, the deeper, the more profound it actually becomes. Where are you now? Have you made choices? Because it feels good. It, It just looks good and it sets you apart from the crowd. Have you taken... You know, good things that are part of God's provision for you. And if you made them ultimate things, and of course, the moment you make them ultimate things, they become your God. And your world is turned upside down. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, uh, verse 10, and I was afraid because I I was naked and I, I hid myself. He said, "Who told you you were naked? It's that's not your problem. Your problem is not your inadequacy. It's not that you're you're simply a creature. The problem is is is, is your rebellion." You gotta love verse 12, don't you? And the man said, The woman, you gave me. I don't know how long Adam was a bachelor. I'm guessing four or five minutes of creation history. Those four or five minutes were so good. I mean, you could walk through the garden and just leave your stuff laying around, you could go to an event and you were never late and even if you were late, who really, you know, cared. And it was so great, Lord, it was just you and me hanging out, all the guys, you know, we're just doing great stuff. And and then you, you you gave me her. (laughs) And, And everything's changed. And so you not only see the sense of alienation, but they're actually turning on each other and blaming each other. You see how everything disintegrates the moment we pull God out of the picture. They're not only alienated from one another, they're the heart of it, they're alienated from God, but they're not even comfortable in their own skin. And these are the things that sin introduces into the picture. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the, the serpent deceived me. And you almost see her, you know, kicking the can down the road a little bit too. But this is almost an honest confession. This is really what happened. He was, I, I was deceived and, and, and I ate. Now, there's an interesting you know, thing in the underlying Hebrew. You love it when I talk Hebrew, right? Uh, there's an interesting thing. Ron, am I, am I doing okay over here? Yeah. Okay, good enough. It really intimidated me that you had a Hebrew professor here and I could... Not really make things up as I was going through that, you know, this morning. But uh, in the original, the way Hebrew or Eastern mind thinks is, is they think from the outside and they move in and they move back out. We think in linear fashion, so our outlines are A, B, C, D. Uh, theirs would be, you know, uh, theirs are a little bit, you know, they move toward the center, then they move out. And so he begins in his confrontation by talking to Adam. And then he talks, you know, to Eve. And then he talks to the serpent. And then he will talk to Eve again. And then he'll talk. So you see how he's moving toward the center then moving back out? So what he's telling us in this text is be alert. When we get to the very middle of the text, I'm going to tell you something that you really need to look hard at and think about. So we have, uh, we have, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? The woman said, the serpent has deceived me. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed to you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What a crazy turn. In the beginning, uh, he was the wisest of all the creation, of all the... that God had made. Here he is the most cursed. The one that would have elevated himself to the heavens is now slithering in the dust. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you should go, and dust you should eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his hill. It talks about an ongoing conflict. It's, it, it, it's going to go out you know, through, through the ages. And uh, the enemy's seed will be in contest you know, against the woman's seed. And uh, you, you see each of them you know, striking a blow to each other. But it's because of the way the Hebrew structure, we want to stop and we want to think about this just a little bit. Right? Because here we're, we're pointing to, you know, the ultimate seed. Uh, yeah, the enemy will strike deep blows, many blows, hard blows, near-fatal blows. He, he will strike one a fatal blow, which in the end will lead to his head being crushed. And here is the very first picture of the gospel and the hope that we have in the gospel that how can we put all this back together again? You and I can't. We can sow fig leaves, but that's about the extent of what we can do. But there will be one who wins a deciphers battle for us, and in winning that battle, we will be restored. And that's the hope of the gospel. Here's, here's how Paul you know, describes it you know, in, in the book of Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that great? How? Well, let's read on. To the woman he said, "I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." In Hebrew, this is again a neutral word. It's only used a couple of other times, and uh, you know we're kind of left guessing. What does it mean? Your desire will be, you know, for your husband. In uh, Song of Solomon, it's used in a in a way of you know sexual desire and sensual desire. And, of course, every guy who reads this text is helping. That's exactly what he means. And for the rest of her life, she'll think, I'm the hottest thing that she's ever seen, and she won't be able to keep her hands off of me. There is another instance when it's used. It's used in the very next chapter, and, of course, that's where we get our hopes dashed just a little bit. It's used in Genesis 4, verse 7, where God is confronting Cain, and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. Oh, that's what we're talking about. She doesn't think you're the hottest thing. She's everything. She kind of thinks you're silly. She's tired of hearing your stories. And she's going to do everything she can to make you behave at parties. That, that's what she thinks. And you have that, you know, beyond that, you just have this incredible tension where we're fighting each other rather than being everything that, you know, the New Testament pictures, loving one another the way that Christ loves us and completing one another and giving you a perfect picture of Christ and, 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 of, his holy, and, and of his holiness. Uh, then to Adam, he says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, not that he's saying it's not good to listen to your wife, it is good to listen to your wife. It is not good to elevate your relationship with a husband or a wife above your relationship with God. You have far less to give them when you do. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat cursed as the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And let me just move you know, to, to verse 19. He's also bringing judgment on Adam at the very place of his identity. Uh, you, you, you'll, you'll love your work, but your work won't always love you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and out of it you were taken for you are dust. From the moment they were separated from God, they they died. And it's an inevitable that they return to dust. Everything about them is slowly decaying, and everything about them is slowly dying. And then the inevitable end is they, they lie in the dust. The man in verse 20, and I, and, and, and I love this. The man in verse 20 called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Give me those fig leaves. This is is incredible because their nakedness and their shame, it is a result of their pushing their creator off to the side and reserving for themselves the very right to, I want to make the final call, what is good and what is right for me, And as long as you're not interfering in in that one last final call, when it really comes down to it, God, you, you can do anything you want to, but when it comes to it, I want to reserve for myself you know the right to decide what's best for me. And so they've completely rejected his power. They've completely rejected his wisdom. And yet, in grace, what does he do? He takes their flimsy, handmade, fig leaf sewn coverings away from them, and he gives them, incredibly substantial covering. (laughs) Your shame and your guilt is a product of your own doing, but I will cover you. There is a solemn assembly in the nation of Israel in the Hebrew Bible, uh, spoken of as Yom Kippur. We call it the Day of Atonement. But the word kippur means cover. What is the hope? The hope we have is that someone will love us enough to wrench from our hands our favorable attempts to cover ourselves and will cover us with his grace. And that is what God has done for us. What did they lose? Have you ever asked yourself a question? What did they lose when they rejected God? Well, an awesome place to live. They, you know, they lost a the sense of you know, romantic you know connection that you know, God had created them to, to, to have and to, to delight in, that they'd lost you know, that. What did they lose? What they lost more than anything else was not these beautiful gifts that God had given them in the garden or in one another. What they lost more than anything else was the presence of God. They had been banished from the garden. And do you remember the plea that David makes before God when he found himself captured in sin? He didn't say, God, don't, don't take the kingdom away from me. God, don't take the palace away from me. God, don't you know, take all of it. He, he says, do not cast me away from your presence. And, and what a beautiful reminder of the power and the wisdom of God. In his provision, he has given us all of the delights of the garden, but none of the delights of the garden are as rich as what he has given us. In himself, It was Augustine who said it, our hearts are restless above all things until they find rest. And the only place they can find rest, that wasn't Augustine, that was Paul helping you understand Augustine. And our hearts will not find rest till they find their rest in you. And that's the invitation back to the garden. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have placed us as marred by sin and as frustrating as it can be, you have placed us in in a pleasant place. You have given us good gifts. And Father, as we rejoice in the gifts you have given us, may our ultimate delight always be in you. Amen.